my biggest biggest uh, bucket list wish is to live by the sea in the Mediterranean and have a house at the beachfront <laughs> and that is it. Thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. it's jolly bright and warm here in the UK. We're in the middle of a small heat wave right now, and I know the temperatures don't sound terribly high when compared to many other parts of the world. Uh, we're talking, what, high 20 Celsius, 80 Fahrenheit? But remember, this is a country not used to such extremes of weather. We don't have aircon a standard, and our roads and railways are built and tempered with cool grey drizzle as standard, so I have a tendency to melt. Just like the people using them, I guess. Well, it's been a busy week for me. My lodger's moved in and is looking after my house while I'm away. And it's weird that it no longer really feels like my house anymore. She has so much stuff that I've been helping us sort through and arrange that it really feels like a different house to the one I live in. And she's there while I go on a few trips abroad. I don't really know what to call them, not holidays, but equally, well, they're not technically work trips as I'm not doing them for anyone else. I mean, maybe a couple of blog posts will come out of them, but I'm going for my own pleasure more than anything else. I do need to get travel insurance, though. My upcoming trip's 77 days long, which is yeah, two weeks longer than the maximum allowed single trip on most policies. Yeah, I'll work it out. I'm recording this at my friend's house just outside Birmingham, where I've been staying at the weekend mainly to drink craft beer and play pool badly. It's an annual celebration of his stag night, where we drank craft beer and played pool badly. Of course, by the time you're listening to this, I should have arrived in Auckland in New Zealand after having spent a total of, what, 23 hours on planes? I paid for extra leg room in an exit row. Yes, this is about as big as upgrade as I'll make to any flight. But one of the flights is 15 hours, 45 minutes long. My problem is that I really don't like flying, mainly because I find it incredibly boring and I get stir-crazy. I've always likened it to being wrongfully arrested and placed in a communal holding cell. You're stuck in a small enclosed space with no real idea where you are or what time it is, around other people who you've never met but are in the same situation as you. You know you're going to be released, but you can't honestly be sure when, and you'll be holding to the people running the place as to when you eat and drink. As an introvert, and someone who's a bit of a control freak, not having the freedom to explore and do my own thing in my own space really irks me. A future pod will talk more about control when travelling, by the way, and possibly not in the way you'd expect. So hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, I'll have arrived in one piece and not come to blows with anyone, but you never know. At least it's a decent airline I'm flying with. It's theoretically possible to fly to New Zealand on a series of budget airlines, and maybe that would be an interesting journey to take. This is not the day for that. I'm not really looking forward to the flight, but I am looking forward to what will hopefully be much cooler temperatures. Although it's winter there, it is further north than we are south, so while I'm not expecting cold and ice, which would be awkward given I'm not travelling with closed shoes, 
though I will need to get some walking shoes when I'm over there, because I'm not climbing volcanoes in Vanuatu barefoot, or even in zero sandals. It will be about 10 to 15 degrees Celsius lower than the UK. Yeah, Vanuatu. That's the main reason I'm going. It's a country I've wanted to visit for a while, but never managed to get to. But now I've got the opportunity, so I've planned on spending about four weeks there. I've never climbed a volcano before, plus it'll be quite an interesting, different and new culture, one I'm not familiar with, so I'll hopefully enjoy it. After Vanuatu, I'll be meeting a couple of Nepals in Australia, then on to Sri Lanka for two weeks, another country I've wanted to visit for a while. Great food and scenery by all accounts, and train ride from Kandy to Ella. It's one of those places that regularly appears on my Instagram feed. Not as often as bloody horseshoe bend mind, but close. So this brings me neatly onto today's topic. One could argue that Vanuatu and Sri Lanka are on my bucket list. In case you don't know, the bucket list is a common feature of not just travel bloggers, but actually the wider public. It's a list of things to do before you die, or kick the bucket. A most disturbing phrase, in all honesty, and one whose origin is surprisingly unclear. There's no evidence for the suggestion it derives from kicking the bucket away from under a hanged criminal or suicide. Rather, there's a feeling that it comes from the bucket or beam that dead pigs were hung on while being readied for the pot. Equally as tasteful. I think pretty much everyone has a bucket list these days, and the idea is kind of supplemented by the myriad of websites, news articles and published books of things like 1001 books to read, 500 beers to drink, 73 quirky places you must see, 24 controversial celebrities you must follow on Twitter type of thing. Obviously this is all subjective, and as an aside, I've never owned any of the Rolling Stone magazine's top 10 albums of all time. I've never even heard of three of the 11 to 20 set. Yet my music collection is, or was before I downsized, well over 300 albums. I uh, will concede that most of it is generally regarded as poor, becoming shite. The entire back catalogue of New Kids on the Block, for fuck's sake. As you can see, though, bucket lists aren't limited to travel, though most people's lists do have a travel theme. For, for example, skydiving, visiting a certain famous site, watching a big sporting event, etc. So for the purposes of this pod... I will be looking mainly at the travel side of it. I asked a few of my tweeps and friends what they thought of the concept of bucket lists and whether they had any items on theirs. And this is what they said. I don't actually have a bucket list anymore. I really don't. I just call it the Hydra instead. I just have a pet Hydra, basically. I call it this because every time you tick something off your bucket list, you get talking to another traveller and they add two more things onto the list. It's just never-ending. I do feel like bucket lists are not meant to be completed and never will be, but we can at least try. Nat from Nutpacker Travels being refreshingly honest about bucket lists. It's something that's often mentioned on Twitter travel chats, especially TRLT. So many people post wonderful pictures that the wonderlust quotient goes through the roof. This is quite a common feeling. Indeed, this pod started with my friend Yaya in Serbia, whose bucket list recording for me was so long it stretched to over five minutes because hers is so full. Now, Amanda from notaballerina.com suggests that bucket lists shouldn't be seen as scripture and gives an example on how focusing on them too much may mean you miss out on other opportunities. So, for example, in my own life, uh, recently I got offered the chance to take a trip to Fiji and work on this um, empowerment tourism project. And that's something that had never crossed my mind before. I'd never been in, uh, any of, on any of the Pacific Islands before. They're quite far from me over here in Western Australia. Just wasn't on my radar at all. And I feel like if I was focusing on a bucket list, I would say no to that and do something else instead. 
And yet I went and it was one of the best experiences I've ever had traveling. So does having a bucket list make you say no to the wrong things or just make you focus on on things that you kind of think are a good idea, but you just don't know what else is out there? Many of the people I asked were a little more openly negative about the idea of bucket lists. Here's Deb from Tagalong Travel, who conveys the idea that I use as a mantra too, one of everything is interesting. I am not a fan of the travel bucket list. What I've learned from regularly tagging along on my husband's business travel is that every place is worth visiting, and sometimes it's the so-called second cities or under-the-radar destinations that end up blowing you away. Sure, you may have places that you long to go, but my recommendation is to leave space in your travel life for random adventures. I know people often quote the phrase, I haven't been everywhere, but it's on my list. I have to say I'm not a great fan of that particular wording as I feel it's just too, well, trite, wishy-washy. And let's face it, rather cheesy. But I guess it's true to an extent. Why have a bucket list if everywhere is going to be on it? I'm not a big fan of bucket lists because uh, basically... It's like, you know, you just want to tick off boxes. Okay, I did this, I did that, I went there, I went there. And quite often people, when they travel and they have a bucket list, they just tick off a box. Okay, I've been there. Okay, I've done that. And it becomes a a core. I don't like that. I feel like you should do what you feel like you want to do instead of just relying on a a list. So I know a lot of people do it, but uh, I don't. That was Rubens from Been Around the Globe, telling us he's not a big fan of the bucket list in its traditional form. To be honest, I'm inclined to agree with his sentiments. Someone else with a similar view is Laura Lundell, who, despite having a small bucket list of her own, is quite ambivalent about the concept as a separate idea. I've got a bucket list, but it's kind of short now. Um, And it was never that long to begin with. There were maybe ten things on it. And now there's only two left, um, Russia and Tahiti. Really want to go there. Um, But yeah, moving forward, I have a pretty long Word document of places that I'd like to go, but there's nowhere that I desperately need to go. Um, But also, like, what's the difference between a bucket list and travel prioritization? Like, there's nowhere I wouldn't go, so long as violence isn't an issue, obviously. But there's certainly places I would rather go. You know, if I've only got a weekend in Quebec, I'd rather spend the two days in Quebec City than Montreal, for example. And that's nothing against Montreal, it's just I only have so much money and time off. So travel prioritization, bucket lists, whatever, like they're good for those who might have a limited budget or time frame. So if you're only able to go on a big trip once a decade, like go see the place you've been dying to go, you know? Don't just go anywhere. Laura sees the bucket list as more of a series of priorities, and this is pretty much exactly what I do. Although I do have lists of places I want to see, mainly countries, and as mentioned in a previous pod, every county, blah blah blah, in the UK. I don't really have a bucket list as such, merely a list of priorities. I want to see Bolivia, for instance, and I know one day I will, so it's not so much a desire as a post-dated fact. The question then isn't, will I go, but when will I go? Rather, what I do have is a little more controversial. I was chatting a while ago with another travel blogger, and the subject of Maldives came up. I said it was one of those places on my... Places I'm unlikely to ever visit and that's okay list. And then I realised that might be an interesting thing to explain in more detail. See, most travel bloggers always talk about the places, countries, towns, activities, etc. that they like, why they like them and why they'd recommend them. Coming from a background in customer satisfaction, this tends to be unusual. 
people are more naturally inclined to talk about negative aspects of companies, of customer service, etc. Although it makes perfect sense in a travel blog environment as people want to read about places they're interested in visiting with a view to actually going there. And where there are positive descriptions from travellers coupled with active marketing activity from local companies and governments, people will want to pretty much go anywhere and everywhere. Now, one of my travel-related hobbies is to do research into most places in the world, to learn more about the history and the culture, and to ascertain if it's a place that holds enough interest for me to want to visit. I have to say I'm quite open-minded on this. There doesn't have to be a lot to perk my interest, and sometimes the more obscure the better. However, even I have my, shall we say, reservations about a small number of places and why I doubt they'd be on any plans in the near future of mine to visit. Obviously it goes without saying that I've never been to any of these places so I'm only speaking about what I've found up on my reading about them but that's kind of the point of the pod. So place number one is Angola. Now if you were to ask my friends they'd suggest strongly that countries like Angola should be high up on my bucket list, as they're war-torn ex-colonial nations and I appear attracted by what you might call dark history. However, in most cases the countries I visit with a bleak past are ones which are starting to recover from this history. Maybe they're going through a period of reconciliation, maybe they've even gone beyond that and are opening up museums to remind people of the horrors, a show of intent that it could never happen again. Or maybe simply the spark or reasons for the darkness have been resolved or simply just passed and the country is a modern functioning nation again. In addition, most countries that I've visited that have had a dark past have other unrelated reasons to visit. So, for example, Cambodia has Angkor as well as Twal Sleng. Timor-Leste has scenery and diving. Much of Africa has wildlife and culture. As far as I can tell, Angola doesn't have these quite strongly as other countries in the area. Although the Civil War ended a few years back, it still seems quite a lawless place. And that's not including the Cabinda enclave, where only a couple of years back the Togo football team was fired upon. Unexpectedly, Luanda, the capital, regularly tops polls for being amongst the most expensive city for expats. The country is very oil-rich, and there's a big divide between those with money and those without. Several countries are like this, of course, Gabon, Venezuela, some might even say the United Arab Emirates, but they don't have the negative feelings that Angola brings. Once you leave the towns on the coast, there's nothing I've seen or read that really attracts me either. If you want remote desert, go to Namibia. If you want rainforest, there's a myriad of better destinations. Savannah, mountain ridges, East Africa is your destination. There's nothing that Angola has that other neighbouring countries don't have better. And those countries are also much safer, possibly with the exception of Democratic Republic of Congo, cheaper and much easier to get to. The second country is Chad. Now, imagine Angola with a much greater proportion of desert and less oil. Chad is one of the driest countries in the world, one of the hottest, and also one of the most corrupt. It's never really been a unified state. The French colonial rulers created the administrative borders, but other than that, didn't seem to really bother with it, much like they didn't do with Burkina Faso. And not long after independence, the fractious nature of the country exploded into an on-off civil war that has continued pretty much to the present day. Relations with neighbouring countries have also been tense, bordering on angry, for pretty much the entire history of the nation. As such, apart from dodging bullets in one of the many rebel assaults, there doesn't seem to be much to do there for me. One of the most pretty and historically interesting parts of the country, the Enedi Desert area, is also one of the most lawless, whilst the capital, N'Djamena, is fairly unnoteworthy, often only the battleground in coups and assaults. It's also one of the hottest and most uncomfortable cities on the planet. And taking all this into consideration, I've honestly yet to find a good reason for me, personally, to visit Chad. Now, number three is Maldives, 
Or, in fact, if we want to expand it a bit, honeymoon destinations, small hot islands in general. See, I always need a reason to visit somewhere. I travel to see things and be active. I also have a low boredom threshold. I'm restless and always need to be moving on. It has been suggested I've got some kind of ADHD, which may explain why I also never get around to updating my blog in good time. Therefore, I like to visit places that not only have an array of historic and cultural sites to explore, but which are also easy to leave and move on to somewhere new. In addition, my travel style is very much geared towards backpacking, cheap and cheerful, hostels, street food, etc., rather than luxury hotels with ensuite jacuzzis and Michelin-starred in-house restaurants. In fact, even the idea of all-inclusive resorts makes my stomach churn, regardless of the quality and the other guests. My objections to these sort of places could equally apply in principle to the likes of Benidorm and Magaluf, neither of which I've been to. Unsurprisingly, therefore, destinations like Maldives, Seychelles and many parts of the Caribbean are pretty much my idea of a holiday from hell. Stuck in a purpose-built resort on a small island, many in Maldives are even the entire island, with very little to do other than lie on the beach, do water sports, not that sort of water sport, and in any case I can't swim, or uh, that's it really, eating only what the restaurant resort can provide, which is likely to be nothing like the food that the locals eat, and not really having the opportunity to explore the country doesn't strike me as a terribly productive way to spend two weeks. To be honest, I'd get bored after two hours. Such places are also incredibly expensive. On my travels, I was budgeting £30 a day and invariably came in much lower than this on average. And this means, including airfare, I could comfortably spend a 1000 a month on travelling. For places like Maldives, you'd be lucky if that gets you a week. In the resorts, what's not included in the initial cost is likely to be heavily marked up, being an island in the middle of nowhere, as well as having no competition. And this applies to everything from travelling to other islands to a simple extra bottle of water. Yes, I know you pay for the exclusivity, the paradise, the relaxation, but that's not what I want on a holiday. I go away to excite myself. My travels are amphetamine, not morphine. Country four is, hmm, surprising, Japan. Also, cross-reference, South Korea. And I've no idea. And this one flummoxes even me. In principle, Japan should be a shoo-in. It ticks all my boxes. You've got dark history, the Shogun era and World War Two. You've got food. I love noodles. I love sushi. You've got scenery, not just Mount Fuji, but the whole of the central belt of, of Japan. It, it looks awesome on the pictures. You've got culture. It's some of the quirkiest in the world. Add in reliable transport, the cutting edge of technology and the world's best toilets, indeed. And we should have a country that I'd be dying to keep returning to rather than avoiding. Now, I think here in part my reluctance is social. Japan is a very crowded and busy nation, at least in the cities, and I have the impression in my head it would be quite intensive for a first-time visitor. And this is the same reason that, while I definitely do want to visit India, I wouldn't do it as a solo traveller. Related to this is also the language barrier. More so than in countries that I've visited, Japan seems very monolingual. I'm not a linguist by any means, though even I just about got by in Uzbekistan, and I fear that being bombarded with nothing but Japanese might well be too much for me. There's also the fear that, despite being so technologically advanced, it's very much cash-based. Coupled with an impression that it's a relatively expensive country, even for a Brit like me, I'd therefore be constantly worried about, do I have enough money? Can I easily get any more? And that may cause me to worry too much and miss out on things that I'd otherwise like to see. There's also the thought that, although it's very crowded, Japan's a very introverted country with a very introverted social scene. And while I'm an introvert as well, what that means is, coupled with the language barrier and the constant fear, I would be kind of reluctant to get myself out into the country and speak to people and a large part of the way I travel involves having to speak to people which is quite weird for an introvert 
I suppose in general Japan isn't on my place to visit list because I'm not certain that I'd enjoy it. I might get there and find I just can't cope with it, like I did in Ethiopia but for different reasons. And maybe I want to like it so I'm keeping it at arm's length where it can't affect me like some kind of spectacular diamond. Now, the next country on the list is the Philippines. I mean, don't get me wrong, I love what I've seen of the region known as Southeast Asia. And in the back of my mind, I always have this pressing longing to return to the lands of temples, spicy food and incomprehensible scripts. To visit cities and places imbued with culture and history. Places like Mandalay, Bangkok, Borneo. Names that live forever in Western minds as exotic and mysterious. On the edge of this sphere, but no less intriguing, lie the islands of the Philippine archipelago. Now, some may see them as a kind of northern extension of the Indonesian islands, albeit with a slightly cooler climate and a much stronger Catholic tradition. Their history is tied to colonialism, and that, along with recent dictatorships and notable street food, surely makes it somewhere high on my list. Except that it isn't. I suspect this is partly my own fault for not really looking too hard into what it's got to offer, but also that when, I've, when I have looked into it, nothing's really grabbed my interest, and I've always been distracted by hmm, shinier things or shinier places in the region. Let's start with the obvious. Manila isn't the most handsome city in the world. It's big, underfunded, messy, dirty, crime-ridden, hectic. And I've come across very few people who've ever expressed a liking for the place. It's interesting, though, that that description could be applied to many cities across the globe. Jakarta, Bangkok, Cairo, Lagos, Glasgow. But I've never heard anyone rave about Manila in the same way that these other cities have their promoters. And I've been to places like that. I've been to Glasgow. I've been to Accra in Ghana. And they've got a style, they've got a life. But I've never seen anyone, I've never read anyone who's saying the same about Manila. Owing to its history, Philippines has a lot of American influence and culture. And maybe in part my dismissal of the country has more to do with, more to do with wanting to go places less defined by their relationship with the USA, no matter how weak that influence is. It's always going to be in the back of my mind. I'm not saying American culture is a good or a bad thing, just that if I wanted to experience it, I'd go to the USA. Plus, being British means I'm already well aware of it from my home life, so I prefer to experience different cultures. For many travellers, of course, the blending of the two cultures is in itself a reason to visit. I guess it's just not for me. To even get to the Philippines, I'd probably have to travel via somewhere else in Southeast Asia, and no matter where that is, the chances are that the pull of my intervening destination, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, would be stronger than my desire to carry on. In a sense, therefore, maybe for me, the Philippines suffers from being, in my eyes, somewhat in the wrong place. Now, I'll concede these are probably weak reasons, but maybe sometimes I just don't fancy a place with no real rational explanation. One that does have an explanation is my last country on the list. Number six is North Korea. But, and this is important, not for the reason that you'd think. My objection to North Korea is, and this will take some explanation, it's too safe. That is to say, I'm a solo independent traveller who likes to explore more of the culture of a place and not necessarily stick to the standard touristy routes. I'm also not fond of authority. A future pod will talk about my bratty submissive streak in more detail. The problem I have with North Korea is that a trip here is so regimented. You must go here on this day. You must do this. You must eat that. You must not go there. You must not say that. And all on a tour group rather than on your own. You also don't even get a chance to relax in your own style. Without internet, for instance, it means that I may get a little bored. And I don't like being bored. To me also, going to North Korea would be like going to Disneyland. It's all fake. Now, some people really love Disney because it's an escape from the real world. You can revel in the unreality and live a fantasy life for a couple of weeks. But Disney isn't as regimented. You are free, or freer anyway, to do your own thing. Whereas North Korea just strikes me as being, well, imprisoned on an aeroplane, really. You will notice some glaring absences in this list. There's a number of places in the world that I'd absolutely love to go to, 
But now is not the time. One day I will visit Syria, for instance. One of my biggest travel regrets is not going there in 2010, when me and a friend were plotting a short trip to somewhere historical and culturally interesting. We edged away from Syria because we thought it would be better to include Jordan too, and we didn't have time on that occasion. It's just not the best place to go right now. For exactly the same reason, Iraq is somewhere I'll visit one day, but today is not that day. Except Kurdistan. That's very likely to be visited soon. The only reason I haven't been to Afghanistan already is because I broke a bone in the top of my foot in Uzbekistan, and not because I was barefoot, and it hurt to walk. Some other lesser regarded countries are also high on my I'm interested in this place plan, including Honduras, the Democratic Republic of Congo, as mentioned earlier, and Guinea-Bissau. Now, as I say, all this is just my opinion, and no doubt some people listening to this part will love some of these places precisely because of the reasons I don't fancy them. And of course, these may change over time. Um, It may be, for instance, that I do get the opportunity one day to visit Japan and find I really love it. Who knows? Lesser Known Destination of the Week Today's Lesser Known Destination of the Week is somewhere I've known about for a while and wanted to visit simply because it's such an odd, quirky place in practice. It's two twin towns with a total population of about 9,000, so it's not terribly big. But the local tourist board calls the area, granted with a spot of hyperbole, the most remarkable village of the world. The towns of Baal stand a handful of kilometres north of the Belgian-Dutch border. But while Baal-Nassau does mostly lie in the Netherlands, its neighbour and twin Baal-Hertog doesn't. Rather, most of that town sits in 22 enclaves of Belgium that are completely surrounded by Netherlands. It's actually even more complicated than that, as there are eight enclaves of Dutch town of Baal-Nassau surrounded by Belgium, the majority of which are, themselves, enclaves of Belgium contained within Netherlands. Confused yet? I was. It all started as long ago as about 1198, and a bit of a spat between two neighbouring dukedoms based in Breda, now in Netherlands, and Brabant, now in Belgium. A peace treaty between the two transferred most of the surrounding area to the Lord of Breda, a chap called Godfried van Schurten, but the Duke of Brabant kept possession of some tracts of land that he'd sublet to various third parties. Essentially, any land that wasn't being actively used was transferred, while the rest stayed with Brabant. You can imagine that these cultivated fields weren't next to each other, but rather randomly scattered throughout the original holdings of the Duke of Brabant. You can probably guess what happened next. Over the centuries, ownerships of the land themselves changed a few times. The Nassau family, who ran the nearby county of Holland, ended up in possession of the lands formerly held by the Lord of Breda, and these settlements became known as Baal-Nassau. Meanwhile, the scattered holdings of the Duke of Brabant became known as Baal-Hertog, Hertog being Dutch for Duke. This became an issue in 1648, the Peace Pact of Munster, that divided the Netherlands area into two separate provinces controlled by two different countries. The Spanish Netherlands took control of Breda, while the Austrians took control of Brabant. Although later to reunite under the United Netherlands, they split again when the southern part declared independence in 1830 as Belgium. Due to the fractious nature of the land holdings, confused by further development of both towns over the intervening centuries, the border between the two countries was only demarcated finally in uh, 1995. And I say border. In fact, spending an hour in the town will probably mean this becomes your most crossed international border because there's so many of them. It's very easy to spot the border these days, in fact. Not only is it painted on the ground with a line of crosses with the letter codes B and NL appearing either side regularly, but the house numbers on the roads are different, with each house indicated with the flag of the relevant nation. This becomes a bit of a snag with one house in the villages, which has two numbers as the border goes right through the front door. Remember, actual demarcation didn't take place till recently, so for much of the village's life the border wasn't that easily identifiable. 
Unsurprisingly, one of the popular industries, shall we say, in the towns was smuggling. To try to get around this, the Belgian government made Baal Hertog a special administrative area with specific codes to track goods passing through and originating in the town. But there were many different ways around the regulations. One wily farmer, for instance, had his barns on one side of the border, but his house and stables on the other. So under cover of darkness, many transferred animals from one to the other on his own property and registered them separately. Conversely, to prevent butter smuggling, customs officers had a habit of ensuring paperwork took a long time to process in a small room, with a roaring fire. During World War I, the Germans tried their best to demark the two towns. Netherlands was neutral, but Belgium was occupied, doing so with a 2,000-volt electric wire fence. This obviously split families and led to much more covert smuggling activity. Part of the wire still remains and is now a tourist attraction just outside the town centre. It's no longer live, obviously. Of course, these days, with both countries being in the European Union, the border is a little more than an idle curiosity. Obviously the two towns still have a respective national rivalry and heaven knows what happens when they both play each other in a sporting event. But the only real effects are minor. Petrol stations tend to be located on the side of the border with a lower tax and until recently opening hours of pubs were different which led to the bizarre situation of people simply stepping to the other side of the border at last orders. As someone who has a passion for both borders and quirky places this town's always been on what markets itself as my bucket list and there's much more there than I even realised. It's a great place to go walking in the countryside, for instance, so I shall definitely have to go back. Well, that's just about it for this week. Next time, we'll continue the discussion about bucket lists in a sense, as I'll be talking about whether travel bloggers and influencers have a right or an obligation to talk about places in a certain way, a conversation prompted by my anti-bucket list in the sense that people thought it came across as somewhat negative in scope. Until then, have a good week, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Ashfield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively, go to my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now.